face it, it's our first fund. It's actually our first investment. There's a romantic story you hear of what it's like to invest in. You want to invest in, you know, in tech, it's like, we got to do the new AI thing, right? And we got to get, we got to get involved in where the hype cycles are and all this fluff is over here. Or you can say, what's my thesis and what do I believe to be true logically? And when we kind of pulled all the romanticism out of it and went back to what's our thesis and does this check out, the answer was very obvious, right? And so I think we had to have an honest conversation of like, let's do what exactly what we said we're going to do. It was never a question, but it was just a unique moment of like, wow, this business is not what you think, right? This You wouldn't go when you're thinking about, you know, sexy alcohol brands to premium boxed wine. And it is by far one of the things I'm most excited about right now because it's doing so well and it's doing exactly as well as we could have ever dreamed it would. On today's episode, we have Jason and Noah from Top Shelf Ventures, a VC capital firm that's revolutionizing the alcohol industry. Welcome to Building Billions, where we cover the risks and rewards of success. Hi, we have Noah and Jason here on Building Billions. Thank you for joining us. Super excited to have you. Thanks for having us. Of course. Do you want to walk us through what you are, what Top Shelf is, what the plan is? Walk us through the nitty gritty. Should I take it, Jay? Sure. Top Uh, Shelf. Oh, go ahead, Noah. Go ahead. Sorry, I'll... uh... Top Shelf is a venture fund, and uh, what we're building, what we're doing is trying to find the best, uh, most high potential alcohol brands in in the industry early in their curve. Uh, We believe, based on some unique experience Jason and I have, as he's demonstrating there as a drinker of alcohol, that uh, we have have some unique perspective based on our background that allows us to find uh, winning brands early, if you will. And the second part of that is that we believe the alcohol industry is unique in its ability to generate really good returns from an investment perspective, if you know where to look. And the punchline of Top Shelf is that we're a fund, venture capital fund focused explicitly on leveraging, exploiting, whatever you want to call it, um, the best of the early stage of the alcohol sector specific to brands with an intent of finding uh, a household name brand in five years today, right? So finding the brands that are going to be household names in the next three to five years, we find them early. We like to say before you've heard of them, if we do our job well, Uh, We're investing in brands that today only a few people have heard of. And in three years, everyone will know exactly what they are. Um, And that's top shelf. What's the secret of making a a brand that actually does stand out and is going, what are you looking for? Yeah, that's changed over time historically for the industry and what has become very large. I think one of the key parts of understanding the alcohol industry is that it's really run in a almost an archaic manner. Um, and it has since prohibition and it's only been recently that the way brands go to market has shifted from let's produce some product we have to convince some older distributors in a city or a couple cities and then go convince some older liquor store chains or big big bar networks or fast food chains to get the product on shelves and only for the first time about five to ten years ago did brands start to sell online to consumers? Did the laws relax to allow brands to do that more closely, directly to consumers ever before? And so brands, unlike the old days, could now build a consumer base and build some awareness before having to convince sort of the major players in the industry that their product was great. And so they'd have this base of product or base of brands, that lo- or base of consumers that love the brand, love the product and can and be able to convince the big players that they're huge well, well earlier. So the old gatekeepers are no longer as important as they used to be. So what we look for are brands that are doing very well, primarily online, maybe in like one market, maybe in a couple markets with a couple dozen bars and restaurants and supermarkets. But really, we want to see very, very strong consumer demand. And that can be seen through retention and velocity uh, at the bars or at the supermarkets. But we love to see big online brands, especially if there's no reason for them to be that big, right? They don't have a big flashy celebrity and they, they don't have a huge backing. What they really have is a product that the people that they found just fell in love with. And we can take them from that online product, that online brand, and really unlock the archaic industry for them to go from that one to 100 in, in a very short amount of time. Walk me through your background. So what, how did you stumble into uh, this our landscape in a way. I can go first. Similar to Jay, and we, we both fell into the alcohol sector. So I was I was always a young, hustling, uh, aspiring entrepreneur. 
And when I was 19 years old, I was lucky enough to meet a very successful established entrepreneur named Michael Loeb, who is a, you know, very successful serial entrepreneur. He's built multiple unicorns and he took me under his wing disproportionately early. And I'm forever grateful for that. He's become a phenomenal mentor to me. And I grad, I worked for him in school and then I graduated and worked, I kind of graduated into like a junior principal uh, entrepreneur in residence type of role. And um, I was across the broader venture landscape. So it was more traditional venture capital job. And I didn't know anything about alcohol other than being a moderate consumer of it in college, right? Like everyone is. Um, and he basically installed me as a founding team member of this business that was attempting and has fairly successfully done deep data analytics for a specific segment of the alcohol channel called the independent channel, which in layman's terms is if you go to the mom and pop store on the corner to buy a bottle of wine or tequila, whatever you drink, that mom and pop store actually is really the long tail of how alcohol sold in the US. It's tens of thousands of these independent liquor stores that are basically totally dark in terms of the data that's available from them. So our team, this company that I eventually was the COO of very early in my career at any young age, had a piece of technology that could essentially read the data from these point of sale registers, the cash register, aggregate that data, understand and contextualize what was happening. And the business model was basically interface with these cash registers, extract their data, build data products and analytics tools and sell them to distributors and manufacturers and the rest of the alcohol industry. And so I got very, very deep into the booze world very early. And my read as a aspiring hustling entrepreneur investor was, wow, this industry, alcohol, is insane. It's everywhere. It's got ubiquity. It's got the best product market fit of any category in the world, I would argue. Everybody see at every restaurant and every holiday, it's all about drinking culture. It's super profitable. It's embedded into society. It's pretty recession-proof. It grows every single year. And the thing that got interesting to me was there's tons and tons of brands that are launching every year because people see this sort of big pie of what could happen. This is around 2017, 2018. George Clooney had just sold Casamigos for a billion dollars. And so the entrepreneur in me was like, okay, there's really something here in this alcohol world, right? The money clearly seems to be in these brands, right? There's going to be a big Venn diagram of brands that are going to launch on the right side. On the left side, a very small set of them are going to get acquired for tons of money. And so my brain started to go to, okay, I'm looking at data. I believe there's money to be made in the industry. Where's, how do I find the winners early in the curve? How do I identify the winners early? And so I was the COO of that business for a few years and the entrepreneur in me just wanted to meet other people who were doing cool things in the booze industry. And um, I think in about 2019, I met Jason, who he'll give you his background, but he just left his, his big fancy corporate job that he'll tell you about to start a company that's gone on to do well, that's, that's um, also been influential in Top Shelf. And that's my tee up to you, Jason. Yeah, I can kind of give a little, so mine's a little, I guess somewhat unique. I, uh, I'm actually a lawyer by background, um, coming out of Harvard, Harvard Law, and then starting a big law firm. And I was fortunate enough to be on a deal that um, helped me get introduced to the right people at the right time uh, to help found Anheuser-Busch InBev's uh, venture arm globally. And they gave us billions of dollars, just over you know a lot of money to spend over three to four years to grow the department from the, the few of us at the time to about 3000 people around the world. And it was 2015, 2016. This is right in the early stages of what you would consider alcohol e-commerce to be today. Um, and so we were going country by country, acquiring or investing or buying the small businesses that existed that were selling any beer online uh, across the world and ensuring that we would prevent the e-commerce channel from being too disruptive to the core to core assets that Anheuser-Busch and Bev had built up in distribution to the retail channel over the course of the prior 10, 20 decades. And as a result of that, we got very close with the US where, believe it or not, it's the most regulated market in the world when it comes to alcohol. There's a lot of places that don't allow it at all, but if they do allow it, we're by far and away the most regulated which really prevents brands from doing much of what we wanted to do as Anheuser-Busch in the U.S. But we could do it everywhere else. We couldn't do it in the U.S. And so we started to play with some models. And most of them were pretty imperfect. You know, you're very early giving money to Drizzly and Minibar, which if you know their stories, one was acquired by Uber Eats. Recently, Minibar was acquired uh, as well. These are big, big companies now. And all they were really doing was sending orders to those independent 
liquor stores know are referenced. And that's a pretty bad model, right? When you think about what we were seeing, you know, selling mattresses or, or hats or towels online, you could do that directly from your garage. You could sell it for cheaper. You could collect the data and make changes. You could do it very quickly, right? Instead, if you're an alcohol brand, and there are 80, 90,000 alcohol brands in the US, if you're an alcohol brand and you wanted to launch online, you still had to go find a big distributor and then a big liquor store chain and then go convince Drizzly that you're worthwhile. And then you might be live in one zip code, right? And that could take a decade. And so I, I ended up, after having gone through that experience and having learned a lot, I ended up coming up with a concept for a business called Taproom, which is a software platform that would make it very easy for beer brands all across the country that were being underserviced by the existing, uh, the existing players, the other existing distributors and e-commerce and retailers and allow them with a very, you know, one click, get online, right? Mm -hmm. And what we started to see, this is back in 2018, what we started to see was other players in the wine and spirits place. There was only a few of us that were enabling these brands to sell right from their website to both consumers at home and the mom and pop and the, the big chains and the bars all very easily using digital methods. And it was the first time that's ever happened. And, and that was really the, the, for me, that was my first startup. We did very well. You know, it's uh, certainly the largest player in the beer e-commerce uh, white, white label platform today, uh, that space, you know, hundreds of brands that we support. And what we've seen over the past few years across all of the few players that do this is a, only a couple brands really stand out every quarter, right? You have hundreds of brands that launch, hundreds and hundreds of brands. And then every now and then one will come along that will just launch online and in a handful of accounts blow up. And you were seeing that on the taproom data. You were seeing that in a few of our competitors. And then very soon these brands would go from selling 10, 20 grand in a, in a few months to hundreds of thousands to millions within, within a couple of years because of their ability to drive that consumer awareness. And so I, I met Noah uh, back in 2019 and we came up with this concept, all this money, all this, all this alpha these brands are generating that, you know, these platforms, the one I was on was not getting any of that upside. You know, Noah was in the data analytics side. He wasn't getting any of that upside. You know, I said, there's no players out there investing in helping these brands going to that next stage. Most of these brands were getting money from, you know, Uncle George that has some money and he likes whiskey. So maybe we should get him to put in some money. And that was, that's still today, the vast majority of the way alcohol brands raise money is just friends and family and connections. And there really isn't a dedicated source of, of VC money that goes towards it or, or even ways for, for, the, for the traditional startup community to identify big brands. So pretty quickly, Top Shelf, you know, we were here today, or you know, we, we call ourselves sort of the, the, the king makers, but I'll, I don't like that term. I think we, we tend to identify winners before they become kings and then we help them. Um, but we're, we're certainly now, uh, sort of one of the preeminent leaders in picking brands very early because they're just, it was a total white space in the venture community. Well, that's great that you guys found a golden nugget within it, especially in, in such a big landscape, the alcohol industry does function a little bit backwards, um, in the way they approach capital, the way they approach scaling, everything has to be, you get the capital first in house by selling and then you grow. But to actually have a vision to have a plan is something that's new for the landscape. How are you bridging that gap with the old school structure um, and approaching them about capital? It's a good question. You've done your research and I commend you on that. I, I think <laughs> I'll speak to it in broad strokes. And if I miss the mark on your question, feel free to probe. You make a good point that historically, because of the regulations in the booze system, which are referred to as the three-tier system, i.e. the manufacturer by law has to sell it to a distributor who has to sell it to a retailer, has to sell it to a consumer. Historically, the way to launch a brand was pretty hamstrung by that framework, right? And it still is today, which I'll get to. But historically, if the three of us wanted to launch a new tequila, we would have to find either our own money or Uncle Jimmy, who's got a checkbook or someone to give us some pre-seed money to come up with the formula and the initial production run, et cetera. That's not untrue anymore. But the big difference now versus then is that historically, the only way to get a customer to try that back in the day, which is really like five years ago at this point, was basically to go hat in hand to a distributor in our market and say, look, Mr. and Mrs. Distributor, I know that we don't have any traction, but our bottle's beautiful and we're awesome people and we're gonna work really hard. Please take a shot at us and take us in. 
So all the leverage in the world was out of the bucket of the of the brand, right? They didn't have any of it. It was just please, please help us, right? Take a chance on us. And then eventually, after years of slogging, you could grow and get to another market and another market and really prove yourself to a distributor. The three tier system still exists in the booze industry today, but the big difference now is that you have sites like Taproom and Reserve Bar and Excel Pay and Coasters and Speakeasy and all these other platforms where they basically enable you fairly seamlessly to sell online while you're still very compliant with three tier to Katrina, the consumer who's buying Jason's whiskey through the Instagram ad. She doesn't know any better. She may as well be buying the hat Jason's wearing because of the e-com fulfillment, right? So it's that same fulfillment. And the big change now is that there's this thing called the internet. where It's you sticking can around. Build I'm so sorry. It's crazy it's, thing it's here to stay. Can, I think it's here to stay. A rumor on the street is it's here to stay. There's You can build a funnel of interested consumers and not only pontificate on demand to a distributor, but you can prove it. Be like, look, here's a sheet. I got $10,000 in orders coming from New York and New Jersey in the last 36 hours or whatever, maybe you can show real data, which then actually shows there's real demand for your product. You're not just making this up. You're not BSing. You're not hoping that maybe the market will take it once you get it through the distributor and onto the shelf and then you do a tasting. You're showing that someone is interested enough in Jason's whiskey that they're willing to click on the Instagram ad or click on the email or click on the link or whatever it is purchase it, wait a few days for it to show up at their house and then drink it and then buy it again. It's a totally different new world, right? And so e-com as a percentage of total sales is and probably will always be a minority and frankly a big minority, right? People are always still going to go to the shelves and buy booze, right? That's how people mm -hmm. behave. But there's going to be a slightly increasing percentage of total sales that are digital. And our thesis with Top Shelf is that that percentage of sales, which are going to remain a minority, are disproportionately valuable in terms of their ability to signal which brands, once they hit that other 97% of sales total, are going to be successful. So you're right? using e-com as a gateway metric in order to convince the old world retail structure to then buy a larger percentage. I wouldn't say we're using it to convince. I would say our belief is that it's a very good signal and we don't have to convince anyone because the proof's in the pudding. If you Absolutely. I would say we are basing part of our thesis on the fact that for the first time ever, you can now find these brands that historically would have been isolated to Des Moines, Iowa. And a local or on the back shelf in the corner. Right, like on the back shelf online and having really good traffic. And it's this ultimate equalizer. Um, that said, to your point, the booze industry, it's art and science, right? So we unequivocally, we're not e-commerce bulls and it's the only thing ever. We don't think everything's going to e-com. We totally believe and have phenomenal relationships and admiration for the big distributors in the industry, which still are the lifeblood, right? Those are the partners you need Absolutely. to work with to scale your brand, right? Our point now is rather than basically throwing stuff against the wall to see what sticks and taking on new brands, we can find ones that have quantitatively higher chances of succeeding by orders of magnitude based on actual demand and customers that are buying the product. And it is beautiful that you can equalize it using social media and other platforms. You, you yeah. can find the new brands now, which archaically or like in the past, you'd never be able to find them. Like that seltzer that you would never see before is going viral yeah. because of X, Y, and Z. And totally. then the retailers are scrambling to go find them. And that's a pretty sweet totally. marketplace to be in. It just, it changes the, it changes the whole world. It's this, it's this flipping of like the snow globe where all of a sudden it's, the dust is in the air and a lot of people are trying to figure out where it's going to land. And I think Jason and I, maybe we're wrong. We don't think we are. Just happened to very clearly see through where that dust is going. Right. I love the confidence that that works for anything, especially in the booze industry. Right, right, right. It's great. <laughs> Own it. It's awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially with working with the the brands, how are you finding that landscape? How is the communication going? What what is difficult for them right now? Brands by and large have one or I think they have three concerns. Their number one is always capital, right? Two, I think we had a conversation with we don't believe this, just to be clear, but we had a conversation with a beverage CPG venture fund uh, that is in, in touching the alcohol space. And they told us it takes $20 million of capital just to build any brand to get to scale. We don't believe that. But at the same time, all these brands need capital to go from, we have something cool, we have traction, we have demand. How do we support our distributors? How would we support the retailers? How do we get our product with enough velocity and enough awareness where it then sells itself like a Bud Light does or a Heineken, 
where you don't need to do velocity, people, but to do marketing, people already are buying it. That's the number one. The second one is connections, right? And the, this is an old industry, just the ability to get on the phone with somebody who runs a large distributor. You have to remember there's only a couple or sometimes three or four in big cities. That's it. And they're the only ones that have access to all the bars, restaurants, and supermarkets in that region. So just having that phone call, hey, I have a really cool idea for a whiskey, or here's my whiskey, it's doing great online. Would you please take this on and give us a chance? Here's how we'll support you. Here's why I think it's going to be much better than your other whiskeys. Just that phone call. You know, I talked to a distributor in New York City in the beer industry. He says he get 300 brands reach out a month uh, to ask for distribution. He only has 200 in his portfolio, of which 50 or 60 of which are Heineken and Miller Coors and Constellation and Corona, Modelo. Like, he doesn't have the energy or the time to manage that many brands. So just getting that phone call. So connections are huge. And even more so in the retail channel, those connections are even bigger, right? Like, you go to the Walmarts, the Targets, or the GoPuffs, they don't have that much shelf space, right? Like you're not seeing of the 95,000 alcohol brands, you're not seeing very many of those. You're seeing 100 or maybe less. So just the ability to get on the phone with a regional or a local, or if you're really lucky, a national buyer, someone decision maker in those bigger chains can take your brand from zero to a billion. You know, we talked to a brand the other day, you know, their brand was made because they got the right connection to the right person at Delta. And they blew up on Delta because they were on Ivory Plain and they used that awareness to then open up the rest of the country. And it's it's that type of connection that can really make what they're doing. And then lastly, they just need a lot of these founders and are great marketers and they have great brand concepts and they love alcohol and they have great liquid. They just don't know the industry. So just some basic playbooks and the idea of how do you, how do you get how do you navigate this place? Or like without making all the mistakes of the past and learning through all those mistakes, which there are a lot of landmines you can step on. What do you, what do I need to do to get to an exit? What do I need to do to go public? There's a playbook to be followed and almost all successful brands have followed them. You just need to figure them out and, and have the right people around you, the right advisors to teach you how to get there. Being in your landscape, do you have three red flags that you always consistently see that you know are like, mm, that's not going to. That's not going to pop. Why don't we just play ping pong here, Jay? <laughs> Go for it. I'll caveat this by saying there's always always exceptions to this because I'm sure we're going to offend someone with saying one of these red flags. But we can outwardly say not to me- not yeah. meant to be offensive, but <laughs> yeah, bring no, it on. Not meant to be offensive, and there's always exceptions to this. But one of them is you know we see a lot of brands obviously who generally tend to be in early-ish days, right, sub 10 million or even sometimes sub 1 million in sales, and oftentimes what is used in their pitch as they would call it a green flag of a signal of growth and strength is we're in 14 states, right? And we're, look how much distribution we have. And Jason and I, knowing this industry, our our brain is always going to, what is your retention and velocity in the accounts or states that you're in? And so we actually care a lot less about top line growth as measured by breadth. We, we care about depth. and. I always say this in booze and in CPG, it's not that hard to spend your way to growth, right? Like if you have a decent product and you're charismatic, like you can probably go to new states and convince someone to take it in and say you have a new state launching, right? Just be aggressive and knock on the door. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, but, but that's a pretty good way to create a, a leaky sinking ship where you're scaling on the top so aggressively and you have all these, I would call them phantom metrics, um, that show top line growth, but that's a ticking time bomb if the retention and reorders aren't there. And so, you know, it's, it's usually a quick tell for us of, you know, brand is doing $1.6 million in sales in, you know, seven states, right? Or they're doing $1.6 million in sales in 14 states or 2 million. And it's like, you should be doing $1.6 million in sales in like five accounts if you're really that fast, right? Like that's, that's what you, that's, that's probably aggressive. Maybe we should call them up and ask yeah. them what their strategy is. Yeah. Like. <laughs> you should be doing it in a very, very small, you should be focused on depth and breadth, right? You should be doing it in a- That is an interesting angle because oftentimes people think I have to wow them by being everywhere at once, but they forget that you have to, you have to hone in on the, the back, like make sure that they're repeat customers, there's depth, there's, there's activation constantly because you have to keep them coming back. The alcohol industry is an interesting one too, because the acquirers in this space, they would much rather you be in fewer places. Um, they, when they're looking to acquire you, 
the big reason being as soon as they acquire you, they actually have to move your distribution from wherever you are to the distributor they work with, which is expensive. Mm -hmm. Usually have to buy those rights out and move them over. So a big cost is to do that. And also the big suppliers who do the acquisitions, they think they're very confident in their ability to scale brands if there's demand for them. But if you've already scaled it, if you're already in 45 states and you're doing $5 million a year, they see that and they say, well, we need this brand to go to $200 million a year. You've already flooded this market is not working. We have, you know, you're not working. Instead, if you got to $1 million in two states or even 200 grand in two states, you're showing them, hey, look how well it's working in this region. If you multiply this by 48, like how big you can make this thing. And the other side is, I you know Noah's mentioned, I, I'm just, I was piggybacking off Noah's number one. So I'll move to number two. And I think number two is just margins generally. And I think we've seen this become a bigger issue in the alcohol industry more recently, especially as some of the more hype D2C concepts started to emerge in alcohol and the larger VCs do D2C CPG work outside of alcohol traditionally started to pour money in. The, the margins started to deteriorate quickly amongst a lot mm. of these single serve package products that were being shipped to people at home with very high marketing costs, very low retention, um, and there was no money being made at all. Whereas this industry, you can make money on orders. You know, the distributors place big orders. The retailers can place big orders. There are margins to be made. I'd say founders and companies that don't have good grasp on that and they're not able to really say, oh, you know, don't worry about it. We'll do it at scale. That's a pretty big, that's a pretty big red flag. Like you should either know what it's going to take to get there, right? Maybe your partners yeah. are here. You're like, I can get them there by doing this and this and this, but like the, the no thought about it at all has, has killed a lot of brands all the way to zero because you lose, you lose track is once you hit that moment of scale, you better be ready. And if your margins aren't there, you don't have the co-packing set up. You don't have the distribution channels ready to go to get the freight out there to get it picked up. And you don't understand how much money that's going to cost you. You, you can end up dying by accident, even though you're very, very successful. Yeah, that's how you see the one hit wonders in the moments too. That they think short run, they're not thinking long run. Then when it comes to scale and they disappoint a customer or two, they're screwed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the key is it's not a software business, right? Like where once you get to scale, you can kind of squeeze down some of the development and marketing costs and people will say, that's not exactly how this works in this industry, right? Like you have really, to keep up with what you're doing. And you got to keep supporting the channels with the right, marketing and, and the right incentives and the right materials right. and merchandise just to ensure that your product stays a winner once it gets there. Yeah. And also you're competing with the new ones that are coming in. So your vertical is never safe. Um, it's not right. like you own this product that you've come up with that's new. Especially in a new category. Continuously. Like we often, we'll talk to a lot of brands creating categories and it's, it's, it's admirable, honestly. It's, you know, trying to be disruptive, creating something that's never existed before. <laughs> But what ends up happening a lot is you create a category and someone else or many other people enter the space with bigger budgets, with sometimes better branding and better understanding of their audiences. And you just get wiped out after having spent the time to educate all the consumers out there on your raspberry soda mezcal concept. Now everyone else is doing the raspberry soda mezcal concept yeah. and, and you're going to be behind. So it's it's a little bit of a balance. You really it's want to like make sure. It's like the peach landscape. Everyone in their shoe came up with something with peaches in it. And now we're, yeah. they're flooded. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Especially with any marketplace. If you're paying to educate, you're going to run into competition real quick and real fast. You're educating your your competition. In any in any market, in any industry, frankly, it's it's not, it's often not good to be first, no. when, and especially in industries like this. Yeah, just let someone else go first, and then figure out what they did wrong, and then run. Hundred percent, hundred percent, totally agree. Okay, so what's our red flag number three? I guess I'll give you just a pure play VC one that's probably applicable to anything that's not alcohol, but just like early on and getting to know someone, if you sense anything that your values aren't aligned or they're not being honest with you, that's, that's usually, I mean, I gave, we gave you two that are pretty specific to booze, although, you know, you could probably extrapolate, extrapolate those other industries, margins and, and depth versus breadth of customer retention, but just dishonesty. And if we catch red flags of like the numbers don't add up and we press someone on, you know, fairly standard things and diligence that VCs need to look at. And all of a sudden the tails between their legs and they're trying to explain their way as to why they fabricated a number. It's just like, that is usually a pretty good microcosm of future things to come. And 
if you, you know, we, we can, we look at the founders and that we've invested in thus far, we're early, but the ones that we've invested in thus far that are doing the best are just have been, it's been the same story, same thesis, you know, exactly what you're going to get. You can have an honest conversation at any time. There's no BS and it's just roll the ball right down the middle, right? Super hardworking people who are honest with you. Um, and that's a good, that's a good example of how you should do business in general, right? Jason and I are pretty honest people. We believe in doing the right thing and being high integrity and, you know, certain, certain people succeed in ways that aren't that and try to do things and cut corners and do things that are immoral and all that. And that's fine, but that's, that's not for us. Right. Um, I think integrity and authenticity is really making a comeback, which I'm grateful for. <laughs> I think people got a little screwy in the middle there. And now we're coming back to a place where we're like, Hey, yeah. you can be called out on your shit pretty quickly. And so hmm. Why not just own it, be there, and then you'll have people actually support you on the journey. And it's different. Totally, totally agree. Yeah, it's well we're, said. We're in an That's age of diligence once again. Which, oh, yeah. You can cover the numbers, don't lie. Right. Yeah. People, people well are said. digging in again. I think there was a period there where you would just say whatever you wanted to say, and people would just take yeah. it at face value. And that's no longer the case. Yeah. No, Definitely. everyone in their shoe with the cell phone is an investigative journalist now. So you really, really don't want to have any holes. That's true. And also valuations in the industry of VC in general has gotten, it was there for the past few years, it was, it was a lot of fluff and, and noise in the system and not a lot of signal. And you've seen a lot of people get um, their lunch eaten to say the least in the last six, 12, 18 months as valuations have come down. And, you know, booze is a little bit different. It's not exactly the same market and the marks are a little different. The venture as a category is um people could get away with a lot of fabrication and storytelling not backed up by real substantive business fundamentals. And I feel fortunate to be in a position now of being actively deploying capital, investing and growing a portfolio where I don't feel the need to rush to win a deal because I'm worried some other funds going to come in and offer them crazy terms, right? You know, we're pretty collaborative with the other funds in the industry and are fortunate to often get to set terms and set timelines when we believe in things. And we try to do that in integrity, but we, we want to make sure we get it right and not rush. And that, that may not have been the case if we'd have been doing this podcast 18 months ago. Definitely. Especially people don't realize it, but with your fund and with everything, it is a relationship that you're building. Um, you're, mm -hmm. you're really investing in them long run. It's not a short run Absolutely. situation. And often people, especially founders will look at it like, I just need the capital now and I got this. I'll grow. I'll make it happen. But the numbers, you got to you got to make sure you're investing in the human and the numbers. They have to kind of work together. Yeah. And not to say we have a niche space, but the alcohol space itself is actually extremely small. Um the players that are involved in it from the capital providers to to all of it done downstream and we all talk uh, a lot and it's one of these things where even our relationship is on the line if something bad happens and we're representing you and you're representing us. And part of the entire project that Top Shelf is engaging is, is finding great people with integrity because then we can represent them to our insiders in the, in the network, in the space that are also acting with integrity. And once one of those pegs falls, you might be excluded from everything. And we, we give that warning a lot. Like this is not an industry to start burning bridges that early. And if you do, there's definitely a lot of infighting at the top. And then people to see that, you know, you saw AB InBev in Corona fighting over Corona Seltzer and you see these big fights, but you're not at that level yet. And if one of those yeah. guys thinks you're not, not acting with integrity, you, you won't last very long at all. And that's our probably biggest advice we provide all the way downstream. Definitely. It makes sense. Um, what is a... Like, give me a story of when you guys were in this in this process. Um, a story that came up where you guys weren't sure how to navigate it or what what to do next. We, we probably got to give the PG or PG thirteen ones only, Jason, because there's some other there's some other stories that we can tell over a cocktail sometime. Of Done. What it takes to get the venture fund, but we'll keep it PG. Um, when we weren't sure how to navigate it, like, what do we do here? Yeah, it's a wall. You hit a wall. Walk me through the wall. Huh. That's a good question. Obviously, you guys are on the other side of the wall now, but give me something. Yeah, give yeah, me some yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I can give you one of when the first deal that we ever did in the fund was one that was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of an anomaly in terms of the type of business it was. And I think when we first, so it fits the process directly and I'm happy to tell you what the deal is, but I think early on in diligencing the company, 
um, it wasn't what we thought the first brand would look like. We probably had in our head that we were going to fund some RTD seltzer of which we now are involved in a few and believe in them. But this was one that was, uh, I, I guess I can just say what it is. There's no reason not to, right? So, yeah, it was a premium box. I love that you checked with world. legal. Yeah, I just, I just want to make sure. Hey, my partner's a lawyer. So <laughs> I mean, I he is currently here. sipping something. Yeah. <laughs> He's a lawyer, so I just got to make sure that I don't get in trouble. Um, this premium box wine, which was a category, you know, our diligence process is we go quantitative first, mm-hmm. right? We look at every brand that launches, we check the numbers, we check the retention, and then we narrow it down to which ones are doing well. And I think perhaps at a fault of my own, I expected the first brand to sound like a, you know, new tequila soda or yeah, something. Yeah, something snazzy. Like, just because that's like, hot in the industry, right? Yeah. And we always had a pipeline of brands, but the first brand we looked at, it was this premium box wine. And it was fairly small when they were first on our radar. But the initial numbers that were directly in line with the thesis we'd written and the playbook we'd written and the models we'd written were blowing us away and were were super huge. And I think we had we had this moment early on. Again, we like to act with speed and integrity and honesty where we had an honest conversation with the founder. And we said to ourselves, "Okay, this is checking every box. The numbers are amazing. The founder's great. The business is fantastic. The product is amazing. And then we actually like pulled out and said, okay, let's look at the category. This act, the category is huge, right? It's going to be huge. Box wine is getting yeah, cool again. Yeah, because the actual numbers that you can get from box wine is the, is the category oh, right. of human that is just repeat. Huge, They're like huge, every huge, every huge. couple of days they'll refill. Huge industry, right? And it was one where when we'd had early conversations with LPs and gotten people excited about the fun, I wasn't pitching premium boxed wine as the sexy thing that you're going to be a part of, right? But, and here's the big but, when we looked at this brand, which is called Grazi, the numbers were so fantastic. The business was so fantastic. And it was checking every single box of, okay, this is exactly the type of business that we sought out to get involved in very early when we have disproportionate conviction from looking at their data and pulling that out and our our connections with the industry that they were going to be huge. And Jason and I had to have a moment when it checked every box and we said, look, this isn't exactly what we thought it was going to be. But we need to triple down on let's let's not go with the romantic story of no, it needs to be a celebrity soda. And so let's go with the thesis of like, this is what we said we were going to do. Let's go do it now. And we invested, I think, over six months ago and the business probably doubled already since we did it. It's absolutely on fire, crushing it. We could not be more proud to be involved and be on the board. And um, it's it's a gem of the portfolio and one that our LPs now are over the moon about because it's already super successful and we're stoked about it. And it was just a good example of like, I wouldn't call it a wall of like, you know, the business is failing, what do we do? But it was one of those, you know, Jason, it's our first fund. It's actually our first investment. There's a romantic story you hear of what it's like to invest in. You want to invest in, you know, in tech, it's like, we got to do the new AI thing, right? And we got to get, we got to get involved in where the hype cycles are and all this fluff is over here. Or you can say, what's my thesis and what do I believe to be true logically? And when we kind of pulled all the romanticism out of it and went back to what's our thesis and does this check out, the answer was very obvious, right? And so I think we had to have an honest conversation of like, let's do what exactly what we said we're going to do. It was never a question, but it was just a unique moment of like, wow, this business is not what you think, right? This You wouldn't go when you're thinking about, you know, sexy alcohol brands to premium boxed wine. And it is by far one of the things I'm most excited about right now because it's doing so well and it's doing exactly as well as we could have ever dreamed it would. Um, I feel like this is an allegory for dating. Like, make your list and stick to it. I don't know. (laughs) Just go for the shiny object. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about the dating market and what knowing business. There you go. (laughs) Business and dating. It really works. But when it comes to it, you have to look at the numbers, right? You guys are in the numbers category. This is this is your bread and butter. Um, and it's pretty sweet that you actually had something that that challenged you to stick to the integrity of your your plan. Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is the first time. This is our this is the first fund for Top Shelf Fund One. You know, Fund yeah. Two might be coming soon. So first investment of Fund One, you kind of want it to be this very very awesome thing, you know. And instead, that was the wall. It was like, are we going to go tell the LPs we're investing in box wine? Like, there's no way that that was. And how is that conversation going to go? Know, how do you snazz that up? Because we told them this is perfectly on thesis. We very much believe in the founder. We very much believe in the business. They're doing incredibly well. They have a great roadmap for unlocking distribution and growing where they're going. And we believe this thing is going to be a huge hitter. It's already played out. So at this point, everyone thinks we're heroes. But back then, it was a real conversation. Like, how do we tell the LPs this is our first investment? Will this affect our ability to raise more capital? Because they're going to look at box wine being like, I don't drink Franzia. Like, what are you guys doing over here? <laughs> um, 
and it's it's worked and out. And the people fine, you're going right? after don't drink box wine. Like you're not convincing that you're convincing them of a vertical right. that they don't actually entertain. Right. That's actually that that is the point. Is is <laughs> we always tell people ourselves included, right? We're not trying to invest in things that we like to drink. Right? There That's you go. actually not the yeah. point. And people people often like to have the conversation with me when I tell them what we do. They're like, "What's your favorite drink?" And I'm like, "I'm going to tell you." But you need to know that that has zero impact on how we invest. Well, it kind of right? works like the housing to... market in a way yeah. where you're like, hey, don't invest where you want to live because that's going to bankrupt you. Invest where others do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I mean, I drink Bud Light. So like the entire. <laughs> I'm not judging <laughs> don't you. Don't judge I'm me. Sorry. Don't. And by and large, you'll hear founders often are like, oh, we'll send you the product and it's great. But like in the end of the day, I, I think of the brands we've evaluated, less than 10 or 15% have even tried before making a decision. Uh, 100%. It's really not about that. I mean, you have to try it before you actually invest. But you know, the, there's so much that goes into it ahead of time before liquid quality is really an indicator because so many times you see this over and over where things that don't to you taste great, you may have a weird flavor. You know, I, I go back to um, this this Bravo TV star back in 2019 launched on my platform this boozy tea seltzer in a bright pink can called lover boy nice. and it just launched at the time and i remember we were a craft beer platform more or less so a lot of snobs at the company and everyone was like what is this it tastes terrible we've never had tea seltzer before it was before the cycle and like it's gonna fail immediately it was the number one product on the platform for two years are you a, are you a fan <laughs> it's, oh. no but it's the, it's the type of archetype <laughs> that would go. be consuming yeah. it right here like, i'm the demo, the demo yeah. <laughs> so you don't Free use the all. liquid test as a test for. <laughs> Don't very look at my garage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's true. Like, also, a thing about the industry is that it it is snob culture, right? Like, you have a lot of people that have opinions. You're deep rooted in opinion, and my opinion is fact because I look at the proof in the the historical references. But the way consumers are consuming them is completely different now that you have virality that happens overnight for something that's like odd, like flavors that you would never think about, like kombucha and alcohol. Like what? It's like an oxymoron. I learned I learned this lesson early in my days in the booze industry. I'm very fortunate to have a, a, a mentor, a partner, a friend who is one of the largest retail conglomerate owners on the East Coast. And he's been in the industry and his family for, for decades, generations, um, his his great grandpa had some of the earliest licenses after prohibition. And I'm fortunate that he took me under his wing early on and showed me a lot about how the booze industry, like the real inside stuff. And one of the first things he taught me that he's continued to reiterate, that's frankly a huge reason of, I think, why we're doing top shelf the way we are, or at least my, my side of this is he taught me early on, this is a guy who, who does hundreds of millions of dollars in retail sales of a ton of different products to his system, right? So he has the ability and influence to technically influence however he wants. He can merchandise things differently. He can put different products in different places. He can try to tip the scales, but his thing is always, no, the customer is the king, mm -hmm. right? He, you can go to the biggest CEO of the biggest co company. Diageo's CEO actually does not report to anyone but the customer, right? The customer is the king and what they do, you can't question it. They are right. And that is, that is a massive unlock for most people. Like the snob culture is great. And like, I like red wine and I like to drink it, but the type of stuff I like to drink is not the type of stuff we invest in. Right. Cause I'm not the guy. Like, yeah. Because you're buying wine. You're buying like short, short specific um, units. You're not buying cases. Yeah, you're not that's moving exactly. so the, product. The, the market as the litmus test is if we had to boil it down to one thing, it's that the market dictates the outcome and the market gives you the signal. And, and our thing with Top Shelf is we just think we have a unique way of measuring that market sentiment earlier. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. Okay, so if let's say someone comes off the street and says, I have this bright pink can of, let's go with passion fruit mix. What, what What's the next step? where where do we at like what are you looking at where, walk me through that process yes yeah, so if you you have the product you've made it right you probably called yeah. some some brewer or co-packer to make it for you and you have a bunch of it and you came to us and you said you you know we haven't sold any of it but here it is it's great we probably say hey go make a website here's a platform to do that <laughs> go and try and reach a network of people and then come back to us and let us know how many of those people came back and ordered again in the first month and that would be like your first indicator 
do people actually like this? It's pretty easy to get people to buy the first time, especially if you have fancy, colorful yeah. marketing and you throw passion fruit in there. Like people are going to maybe try it. I think it's that second, that third, that fourth. That's when you really know as a liquor brand, you're not just that that fad moment. You know, you really have a consumer base that's like, this is my new drink and I'm going to have this in my house regularly. You know, when people come over, I'm going to actually serve this to them and make them try it. That's a big unlock for a brand. Um, mm -hmm. And then once you kind of hit that moment, maybe we'd say, go try it in a bar, in a, in a supermarket. Go see what you have to do to the packaging. What do you have to do? Where do you want to place this product? Is it going on bodegas and it sits as like single cans and people grab it on their way out? Or is this something where people buy big cases of it with fancy, cool cardboard packaging and it'll sit at the big box retailers? Or is this really going to be only in bars? You're going to have it on menus and, and serve it at fancy restaurants. You know, Figure out where your product's going to sit when people are going to be enjoying it, either when they're picking it off shelves or when they're going to go enjoy it on, the, on premise when they're going out. And once you kind of have some of those pieces together, you, you might have a really powerful brand. You know, some brands are only built on the on-premise. Some builds are only built in the off-premise. Some brands are only built online. Those are not usually going to be huge, but they can only build built online, especially in the wine space. And, and at that moment, once you've kind of hit that, if you're like, I am ready to go from the one state I'm in and, and my online traction, I'm ready to really pour some fuel on this fire, grow some velocity. I have a playbook for marketing that will work in every bar or work in every supermarket, top shelf, what do we do now? You know, And I think that's when we would get involved and bring some capital in. We have a huge network of uh, other venture capitalists and, and our LPs are always co-investing in a big way. We have big strategic money that, that will follow us. Um, we'd love to get them all involved in your round and then open up all those connections so that you can go from it working in a few places to it working in a few more in a lot higher velocity. Um, and that, yeah, that's kind of the cycle. It, it almost all brands should follow that playbook in some sense. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a tried and true method. I think, you know, we gave you some of the red flags of expanding too quickly, but there's the other side of this is expanding too slowly. You know, if you kind of mm -hmm. hang around a few, too, few places, it might be working, but at some point you're never really going to know how big it can get. Um, and you might miss the mark. You know, you'll see this cycles where fads in the alcohol industry also hit on, you know, you're going to see these things go very, very big. And if you don't quite get it out there fast enough, someone else might just eat your lunch. So there's also that element of if you've been around a little too long. So we, if you feel like I've been doing this for four years and I'm in 10 accounts and I sell two grand online to the same people over and over, we might tell you like, you just got to try a little, try a little more, you know, expand a little faster, show some growth. Um, so those would be the balance if you were starting a new brand. What's that sweet spot in terms of time, time that you're looking at where you're like, you've been in it for, is it two years? Is it like, is there a time benchmark? You can be in it as long as you want. I think before you're ready, you know, we've seen brands that have been in it for seven, eight, nine years before, you know, they've been basically flat mm -hmm. for years. Especially in your category. Oh yeah. Right? I mean, there's this canned wine in particular that I invested into, um, and, and the founder basically just kind of hovered around in like three or four states for probably eight years and making canned wine, premium canned wine. And then the category picked up and she was a leader in premium canned wine. And she went from this to this in a two year period, just because she was in the right place, the right time. Everyone knew who she was. She already built the connections and in a lot of, we would probably get involved right as you're, right as you're scooping up, we would see that. And that's mm -hmm. when we would get involved. But a lot of these earlier founders, like if you really believe in your, your, your category and your product and your brand and your consumers, you keep those consumers engaged, sometimes it's just timing. You know, I did the first hard kombucha acquisition in the alcohol space back in 2016 with this brand called Kombucha, which was actually like a joke <laughs> on some daytime TV show. Honestly, the meme alcohol pushes do well. Every time we see a meme push, it does it, well. Yeah, um, it rocket ships. <laughs> but they also don't last long. <laughs> That's kind of yeah, the oh yeah. Uh, it's a, you got to innovate right after you, yeah. you absorb the consumer, and then you have. And to that innovate. was their issue. You know, they, uh, the the Kombucha brand died about a year later after we acquired mm -hmm. them. And then June Shine and Flying Embers, if you've seen these on shelves, now are massive brands, massive, massive brands. So you yeah. can be a, a leader in your category for a long time and still fail. So it's, it's one of these hang around. And then once you see the movement coming, that's when you've got it. You got to pour that fuel, fuel on it. Especially when the consumer is asking for it. It's interesting, often even with canned wine, people were not comfortable for it, with it for a long time, but then all of a sudden it popped off in, in a little spot. 
And if you can ride that yeah. wave up without having to pay to educate, it's kind of sweet. Absolutely. Um, you saw it. Yeah. It's happening with the early too, can yeah. wine brands. Also, we did this acquisition of, you know, the fat Jewish. He's like an influencer that was around for a long time. Yeah. He launched a can wine brand called Bay Rosé that, you know, he also had some wines with like, you know, it was like white girl problems and it was a whole bunch of uh, <laughs> meme wine brands. And that was a big acquisition AB InBev did early in the can wine cycle. But it was exactly that. It was like that was can wine was just meme, meme ideas and meme, meme thoughts. And it was getting out there. It almost built the category. And then all the meme can wines kind of died away. And now the the real yeah, because they weren't founded in flavor, <laughs> right. they were memes. Like, right. Like, yeah, there were some dudes inside joke going viral. It is a way to build a category though. It gets people's attention. So it is something, but yeah, builds wounds are culture. It would be interesting actually to like, for example, box wine, have like an entire ecosystem of, of brands that are ready to pop and then mm. have a meme meme category that they all invest in that just takes the education route and then they jump in it yeah that's uh that that's a it's a good it's a good playbook i I believe in meme culture for sure that coalition approach would be interesting i definitely think there's a play for the box wine category as a whole which is going to have this moment i think it goes with the authenticity pitch like i think a lot of people are um wary of the public branding like the over expenditure on branding there is a category of human that is apprehensive about it. They're like, eh, I don't trust you. And so mm. box wine kind of cuts through that. It's like a BS meter. That's, and so it's a type of consumer. It's a consumer true. that isn't going to be purchased or pushed onto, but they'll come yeah. forward, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, very true. Well said. Any other parting words on the on the journey so far for Top Shelf? All right. What else no, should we I talk would about, encourage Jay? anyone listening that if they have a favorite drink, a favorite alcohol drink that you think we haven't heard about before, which is unlikely and doesn't happen very often, uh, we would very much encourage you to send them along. Uh, we definitely want to talk to as many people in the space as possible, building something really cool. So that's the, definitely the big parting word. Yeah. Retweet. <laughs> I agree. Amazing. Love that for you. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, the two of you, yeah. for being here. I'm absolutely grateful, and I can't wait to watch you guys dominate all the top shelves. <laughs> it's going to be great. Thank you, Katrina. Yeah. Well said. Good parting words. We appreciate you having us. Super good to meet you. Same here. <laughs>